he's prioritizing once again the interest of mega corporations, um, giants, you know, companies and CEOs, and it's it, it is this quintessential neoliberal philosophy of looking at solutions. It has to be market driven. We need to protect the markets, and the market efficiency will guide us out of everything. I mean, I think that's just this. That's just the philosophy and the and the, and the world and education that he came out of, and and there's a lot of other leaders and positions of power who also fall in the same category. But we all know that everything is about you know so, you know finding a new economy that retains value for the poorest people in our communities. That is real economic development. So one of the things that Ron mentions in the interview that I think is really important is that Cuomo comes from a, comes from a group of Democrats that believe the market is the moral arbiter of everything. And, you know, this is obviously the Clinton wing. This is the neoliberals. This is the neoliberal rot. This is why they chose to privatize everything. This is why they choose to uh, place big corporate donors over the wants of the working class and a whole host of other things. And call me a cynic, but this should not be shocking to anybody. Cuomo has a long history of corruption. And I wanted to uh, bring to your attention a couple of past things that he's been involved with that I think uh, should have been grounds for resignation when they happened and they weren't. He continued to have a political career after this. Uh, the first thing is the Moreland Commission. Uh, if folks don't know what that is, I'm going back to 2010 to 2013 now. So uh, he he wanted to clean up corruption. He campaigned on that, right? So he created this special commission of investigators to root out cor- corruption in Albany. And this was known, known as the Moreland Commission. And the idea was this was going to be this completely independent body that was uh, going to be free of his touch, free of anybody in politics touch and that they would be given free reign to find uh, the money trails and to get the corruptions out of the New York state government. But that's not what happened. So what happened was, um, turns out that they they started investigating a situation for uh, that had to do with campaign finance laws. And they issued a subpoena to a firm that had placed millions of dollars worth of advertisement for the state Democratic Party. Uh, in one of, the, one of the things, the connection was, they had run Andrew Cuomo's campaign for governor. So there was a tie there between him and uh, this organization that they were investigating for campaign finance breaking. So within a year, what does Cuomo do? He dismantles the Moreland Commission, poof, gone. So that is how he dealt with that. I I think another really salient example is the Buffalo Billion. Uh, You know, these are things that people in the state of New York knew about. But I don't know that they got much attention outside of the state. So he had lost uh, the western part of New York in the 2010 election. And in response, he came up with this economic package that he called the Buffalo Billion. And it was a real estate development. It was money to upgrade the waterfront parks, uh, take care of factories, medical, technical facilities. It was sort of an economic revitalization. But it turns out that there was, of course, corruption involved with that. the founder of a co- company called Sunny Polytechnic Institute came into the crosshairs of federal prosecutors uh, because he earned an $800,000 state salary. Uh, he drove a Ferrari with the license plate Dr. Nana, which is kind of hilarious, uh, but and com- repeatedly boasted about his wealth. Uh, he was later sentenced to three and a half years in prison for his role in bid rigging scheme 
that had everything to do with Cuomo's allies and the Buffalo Billions. So point being is that Andrew is a corrupt guy. He has been corrupt for a long time. And the situation with the nursing homes is sort of on brand for him as far as I'm concerned. And let's talk now about something that has been a newer allegation, though, that I think is going to be the nail in his coffin. And that's obviously the allegations of sexual sexual harassment and now one that I would consider to be a sexual assault. So yesterday the news broke that a, another aide has now accused him of groping. He groped her inside the executive mansion, inside her blouse, fondled her breasts. Um, she did not come forward, forward with this. Another aide did apparently when they were watching the press conference in which Andrew was basically saying that he had never touched uh, any women inappropriately. Uh, and he described his his uh, behavior as playful and, and misinterpreted. Well, this upset her deeply because she knew otherwise. Uh, and so she felt compelled to to tell her story to another aide who is now who has now come forth and talk about it. So we don't know her name that hasn't been disclosed yet. Hopefully um, she'll be protected when her name does come out, because often the victims of sexual harassment aren't protected. And so now we're up to six women. And I'll tell you right now that there's probably more. Generally, men that engage in this type of behavior, whether it's sexual assault or harassment, do so wildly. You know, it may not be the majority of male, of the male population. In fact, we know it's not. It's generally, what, 3 4% that do? But the ones that do, do it repeatedly. So this is why when you see one or two women come out with a story, there's generally a bunch that follow suit. So who knows where this is going to end up going? I wanted to discuss, though, some of the rank hypocrisy that we have seen surrounding this, because it's unbelievable to me that the Democratic Party wants to protect protect its own in this environment when when Republicans do the same exact types of behavior, they go full gusto against them. Sexual harassment and sexual uh, assault should not be politicized. You're weaponizing something now. We should be against this across the board. It's wrong when Trump says things like grab him by the it's wrong when Trump gets, you know, does sexual harassment. It's also wrong when Al Franken does it. And it's certainly also wrong when Andrew Cuomo does. We need to be married to our principles, not a political party and not a candidate. So when we're married to our principles, then we know it's wrong across the board. We're not finding ourselves playing, uh, you know, this political game of whether or not the guy was a Democrat or Republican. It's just flat out wrong. The other thing that I see going on that I, I find really appalling is the slut shaming. It's appalling to me that you would look at any woman and say, well, she deserved it. Really? Or that the timing might be off. She's making it up because it's politi politically inconvenient. You know, this is all just absolutely garbage things to say about a woman. If you are slut shaming a woman, talking about her dress, her appearance, or, or saying that she did something to de deserve this, this is just holding up a patriarchal viewpoint of women, in my opinion. You're judging a woman through a patriarchal, patriarchal lens, and that is the exact opposite of feminism. You can't have it both ways. Uh, you know, when's the last time you saw some male guy that's been accused of stealing a car in his defense, you know, if, in his defense against the victim, say, well, the victim bounced a check 12 years ago, as if that makes it okay. You only see this when it when it comes to women and sexual harassment and assault. And we need to change the discourse in this country if we're going to change what happens and what surrounds us. 
So on that note, I wanted to talk about one that really has me upset, and that's uh, Kristen Gillibrand. She was a big part of the Me Me Too movement. She went full bore against Al Franken. She went full bore against Brett Kavanaugh. Those guys deserved that. I'm not, I'm not angry that she did that. I'm with her on that. What I'm angry at now is the way she's handling the allegations against Andrew Cuomo. So I wanted to turn to some of the comments that she made uh, over the past few days in regards to the situation in a Yahoo, uh, Yahoo interview. Uh, one of the things she said was asking every female elected in our state when a person should re- whether when a person should resign or not really isn't the conversation we should be having. But it is the conversation we should be having. You're basically having a tepid response to him simply because he's a Democrat. How is this acceptable? It's absolutely not. Um, then she went on to say, and I have to say it's exceedingly frustrating because so many men who are also in public leadership aren't ask these questions day to day. The women in our state are not meant to be judges, jurors, and executioners. I, you know, look, it's true that the men aren't asked, and she's right about that, and maybe they should be as well. But I also don't think it's fair for a woman that has been at the forefront of the Me Too movement to not be outspoken across the board on issues of sexual harassment and assault. Either this is a problem or it's not. It's really that simple. So if you're going to politicize this, weaponize it because of party politics, you're not committed to principles and you're a hypocrite. It's, it's really that simple. So that's my two cents on that situation. I think we might be hearing um, from more women in the near future. So this is sort of going to be an ongoing story. Andrew Cuomo has made uh, no apologies in regards to this specifically. I don't think he is going to resign on his own. It might take some more pushing. Without further ado, I want to switch gears and go to what will become one of my most favorite things to do. And that is the memeing of, jo- of Jen Psaki, our press secretary. <laughs> I did this yesterday a little bit with another clip. Uh, so Jen, Jen Psaki is an ex-lobbyist. I don't know if folks know that. And she's been out there going on and doing interviews for Biden. She hasn't really done a full flo- full-fledged uh, press conference per se, but she's been out there, you know, doing her, her bit. So I want to go through this uh, appearance she had last night on CNN with, jo- uh, with uh, Lemon. And we're going to go through it and some of the things she's saying and why some of what she's saying is problematic. In, in particular, I want to focus on on the fact that Biden now doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. And she's talking about that. So let's let's um, play that clip. But now the hard part comes, Jen. You have to implement it. That means getting those checks out, getting jobless benefits out, getting uh, school funding to the right uh, to the right place. Right. And kids mm-hmm. back into school. When will Americans start to feel this help? Well, Americans will start to get checks this month uh, in March and our uh, Treasury Department and all of our policy officials are working hard to expedite that and make sure they can get them to as many people as possible. And hopefully we'll have an update soon on how many will get their checks this month. But you're right. And I was talking to the president about this today and his focus now is on the details, the details, the details. When do people get their checks? When do schools get funding? How do people know if they want uh, if they need more unemployment insurance? So. That's what our focus is going to be moving forward. This right, is the really important piece now is the implementation. I want to make a point that she, because she's bringing up the unemployment insurance. Uh, so if you've been following this bill and what's happened, there in the original House bill that was sent to the Senate, the uh, unemployment insurance was at $400. It, it got 
chopped back to $300 because Joe Manchin apparently is the president now and controls everybody. And they agreed to this because that's what he approved of in his language. But I also want to point out that a year ago under the GOP controlled Congress and with Trump in office, it was $600. This could become a problem later for the Democratic Party. They've now uh, agreed to uh, payment this half of what it was under a full GOP control when they campaigned on giving uh, folks more money. And they seem to think that this is a big win. I don't. Right on. So President Biden is planning to appoint someone to get the job done, a czar, right? Can you give mm-hmm. us an idea of That's who is Russian under consideration? Up. Not he didn't yet. get the memo uh, not doing Russia stuff. Uh, an important position for him. You know, he looks at the implementation of the Recovery Act as a model in some ways. Uh, he rolled up his sleeves when he was overseeing that. He was calling mayors. He was calling governors. He was spending five or six hours a day focused on that. And he wants this? to make sure that there's a similar model. So he rolled up his sleeves. He was calling mayors. He was calling governors. He, he was going to get this thing passed. But he couldn't get his own damn party in line in the Senate. The two Delaware senators, that's his home state, voted no. This to me is a failure of leadership. It's his job to get everybody in line, right? And if, if, if that doesn't happen, I don't know how we get the Republicans to agree with what we want. Or somebody can pull all the levers of government to implement it, but we don't have a name yet. Hopefully we will soon. This is because this is such an important part of getting the money out and the relief out to the American people. All right, CNN, listen, we have some polling. Let's talk about how people are feeling about this new polling. And it's fascinating because larger tax credit uh, credits, there's, there's money for uh, return to the classroom. Uh, there's, there's sending stimulus checks, all popular with Republicans. Republicans want that. But you didn't get a single Republican vote. Does that change the amount mm-hmm. of time that you're going to spend working with the GOP in the future, Jen? It should. Well, look, the president's an optimist. He believes he was in the Senate for 36 years, and he believes there's still a path forward to work with Republicans. So the door to the Oval Office is open. He wants to do things like infrastructure, immigration, issues like that. that there has historically been support from both sides of the aisle. But he, he didn't delay on this one, Don. As you know, he, he was supportive of moving forward with reconciliation, a very Washington term, but a way that uh, meant that it didn't require uh, more than 50 votes. And that's how we're getting this relief out to the American people as quickly as we can. So uh, he's not going to be pulled around. All right, I feel we need to point two things out. Number one, not a single Republican, after after the bill left the Senate, went back to the House, not a single Republican signed on to this, not a single one. And in, in fact, we had the one Democrat from Maine that also didn't sign on to it in the House, but his beef was a legitimate one. His complaint was that there was no longer a $15 minimum wage as part of the bill. And maybe if five other uh, House Democrats, progressives, had joined him, that would have forced them back to the table to include the $15 minimum wage in the bill. And, I, and again, I said this yesterday, this is important because we need real structural change in the country. Right now, this bill is more or less a temporary Band-Aid over an open, open gaping, festering, pussy wound. It's not going to do all the things that we need done. So at this point, you, you have a, a policy, multiple policies that are popular with voters in both parties, across the line. Plurality of voters support the things that are in the bill, yes, of course, and there's some good things in there, don't get me wrong, I'm glad we're doing this, it's better than nothing. But there's also a plurality of voters that want a $15 minimum wage. So not only could you not get the bot Republicans to join in on on the bill as it was, 
you couldn't get several members of the Democratic Party to sign on, including, I'm going to say it again, the two Delaware guys from your state. This should lead you to believe something. You're going to have to play hardball if you want to get something done. So either there's one of two things happening here. Either you're fine with this milquetoast stuff and selling it as the, the new deal. Maybe that's what you want. Or you're just weak. I don't know what it is. He, he's, his focus is on delivering, but he still delivering. wants to work with Democrats and Republicans. He think, thinks there's an opportunity to continue to do that. All right, but Can listen, we, let's realistically to do here, that. how are you going to get We haven't done that yet. Republic yeah. How are we continuing? ...on board for any other legislation. I mean, who, who can you go, go to to work with? Because even the people who, who you engage with and met with, they didn't come on board. Zero Republicans, yes. Jen. Thank you. You're, you're, you're totally right, Don. And you were talking a little bit earlier in your show about that. And we also have seen polling. Uh, more than 70% of the public supported this package, including, as you already noted, Ergo. the majority of Republicans supported this package. And this may require a little self-reflection as people go back to their districts and people are looking at, you why didn't you support this check with these direct checks that I'm getting? Why didn't you support uh, you know, the, the money that's going to help reopen our schools. Uh, but we need to leave the door open. The American people elected Joe Biden so that so that we can work together. And that's what he's committed to doing. Stop, so, stop, you know, stop, there stop. Are that is like not why we elected Joe Biden. We elected Joe Biden, A, because he's not Trump, and Trump was that horrendous. But he campaigned on a $2,000 payment. He campaigned on, on structural change. He campaigned on supporting the $15 minimum wage. Now, granted, he's still giving lip service to this, but it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to get a single bill passed on this because it's going to be subject to a filibuster, which means instead of needing the 50 votes, we're going to need 60, which is going to bring me to my next point. Infrastructure investment and immigration, I mentioned. He, he's had some meetings in the Oval Office about some of those issues, and we're going to see what we can work together on. Let's talk about some uh, what's in the bill, okay? There's provisions like expanding the child tax credit uh, and increased subsidies for health insurance. Uh, those expire, oh, though, God. after a year, Jen. How much of President Biden's sales pitch next week will be about convincing Americans that these social safety net measures should be permanent? Well, a big part, he wants to make the child tax credit permanent. He's talked about that, and certainly he'll look for opportunities to do that and to work work with members of Congress to, to get that done. And he certainly wants to make health care more affordable and accessible. But his real focus is on all of the specific details and making sure that people understand out in the country how to get access to all of the benefits of this package. So I expect that's going to be really the focus of his uh, travel and the vice president's travel and other members of uh, the administration who will be out there in the country, making sure people know, people know uh, how they get the direct checks if they're eligible, how they benefit from the child tax credit, how, what this funding means for their schools. So this is this this next couple of weeks or these these trips that he's going to take is really going to focus on this particular package. But I promise you, he sees the benefits of the child tax credit uh, and, and knows that's a, a way that we're going to address the crisis. That is the no, the percentage of women, the number of women who have dropped out of the workforce. So he'll look for opportunities to talk about that, too. But this will really be about the package that just passed today. Listen, this is important. And I know, you know, uh, as a parent yourself. So let's hone in on the, the guaranteed payments to families with children. It's basically a form of universal basic income if you have kids. Do you think people are aware enough of that provision and the difference that it could make? Hang on, let's pause here for a second. It, it, We're not look, sure. This will make a difference, right? It, it, is, it is giving money to needy families, but the beef I have with this right now is it's not good enough. 
if you're looking at a metric of 28,000 a year for a family of four as being in poverty, are you kidding me? That 30,000, you're still in poverty. 40,000, you're still in poverty. And I went, if you didn't see the live stream yesterday, go back and watch this. We went through the numbers. If you live in Los Angeles and you're a family of four, you need to be clearing around 70K a year to not be in poverty. So the idea that we're going to pull up, get rid of half the child of poverty with this temporary one-year fix, it's not going to happen. Uh, it's a step in the right direction, but it's not good enough. Everybody knows that they can benefit it from it and how. And so that's really incumbent on us and incumbent on you know, you're talking about it now, but governors out there, mayors, a, a lot of people who, who, who have megaphones to talk about and make sure people understand how they can benefit. Because look, Don, if you're a family of four and you're sure making $100,000 a year as a family, you'll get $5,600 in direct checks, right? And then you'll also get an additional $3,000 from the child tax credit. That That's pretty impactful at a time where... 10 million people are out of work and people are still trying to make ends meet. And that's really what this package still. is for. Most people won't have to do anything because if they filed their taxes in 2019, the, the, then that will be the basis. Or if they're filing it for 2020, that will be the basis. But we want to make sure people right, understand so how they're so benefiting. Yes, this is much needed help. It is help, but it's, again, I'm going to say this again, it's not good enough. You know, most countries have been getting UBI payments from 80% or more of their paychecks through this entire COVID crisis. The United States is the only industrialized nation that hasn't been doing this. And now we're looking at a situation where the rent mor moratorium is going to cease and some folks have, what, $10,000, $12,000 due in back rent. Where are they supposed to get that money? They haven't been working. $1,400, it's not going to be good enough. This is, it's an impending problem that's facing us um, and we need to do something more to address it. Fitting. And, and also how this is going to help them get through this really difficult period of time. Yeah, two important things that, uh, and it's going to be tricky for you, the, the filibuster and, and, and voting rights. And if you don't get one, it could affect the other. So the number one agenda item obviously was COVID relief. Now you need to get the voting rights through. But in order to do that, you've got to get past the filibuster. Stacey Abrams is I proposing agree. voting rights legislation that it should be an exception to the 60-vote rule, just like judicial and cabinet appointees, Jen, appointments. So I know that the president is opposed to eliminating the filibuster entirely, but what about this idea that Stacey Abrams had, has that it, it, it would mean that you don't have to, to choose between the two? What do you think of that? All right. Pause this for a second. I... I when I heard this, I was so irate because the filibuster has been used time and time again to enshrine both racism and classism. There's a history here. It needs to go, period. Uh, his first question was more on point. We need to get rid of the filibuster. We shouldn't just make exceptions to the rule. It needs to go. 